These are individuals that face a deadly journey to get here. They face deadly terrain. There are days when there are probably four to 5,000 people out here on the ground walking. They face robbery, kidnapping, assault, rape, and murder by gangs and cartels. You're so young, why are you risking such a journey to go to the USA? It's Did your parents approve this? No, seven. The crackdown on migrants by Mexican immigration has caused the price for a coyote to almost double to around $8,000 per person for passage to the U.S. Well, the sheer number of border deaths have gone up. It's a mass disaster. We're inundated with information, both dead bodies and missing persons reports. Remembering they're crossing a desert that is known as the Devil's Highway. Up at the top of the upper list. And the Minutemen are observing them from different posts. They've called in the Border Patrol. A tragic image from the southern border reveals the grim reality facing many Central American migrants who make the dangerous journey. It was here that we picked up the migrants' trail. This is what they call a death map. It shows the distribution of people who have died while crossing the desert. The exhibition is called Hostile Terrain 94. It is a global participatory political art project whose goal is to raise awareness about America's humanitarian crisis at its southern border. Doesn't matter what your political stance is on immigration, how you feel about immigration, it's a human rights thing. It's keeping human beings alive. Hello, and welcome to Immigration and Democracy. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Alsop. In this series, we'll bring you fresh knowledge and insights from the team at the Immigration Initiative at Harvard, led by our director, Professor Roberto Gonzalez, and featuring voices from the field. Join us as we get to know our neighbors through their stories. In today's conversation, we're discussing the theme of border crossings. We talked to archaeologist and anthropologist Jason De Leon about what it looks like to cross a border and what kind of traces people leave behind in the past and present. The Trail of Tears, the Underground Railroad, the US-Mexico border. We know that more than 3,200 people have gone missing since the 1990s to the present day in the Sonora Desert alone. But what does that mean? And how do you document atrocities happening to people who are, by the very nature of their plight, undocumented. Jason DeLeon is Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's also Executive Director of the Undocumented Migration Project, which is committed to documenting and raising awareness about the violent social process of clandestine migration through a combination of anthropological research, education, arts initiatives, and public outreach. One of the things that's always really inspired me personally about Jason's work is that he's far from your ivory tower academic. He's also very much an activist and also an artist. Like many migrant scholars, I first came across Jason's work through reading his 2015 book, The Land of Open Graves, Living and Dying on the Migrant Trail. I've since taught and shared this book with students at every opportunity I've had because it really is one of the most human pieces of academic writing about migration I've come across to date. In the past year, it's been a real privilege to work with Jason and his team on the Harvard hosting of Hostile Terrain 94. It's going to take place in 130 locations across six continents throughout the fall of 2021. Oh, and another fun fact about Jason, he's a hardcore punk reggae musician.
So Jason, to kick off, for those who aren't familiar already with the incredible array of work that you've done, could you tell us what it is that first got you interested in this topic of migration and how this started through quite an unusual lens, which was that of archaeology? Well, I guess I began my career as a very traditional archaeologist who had been very interested in things like ancient trade and exchange in Mexico. And so for many years, as an, both as an undergraduate student and then as a graduate student, I was conducting research in central Mexico, West Mexico, and then for my dissertation, the Gulf Coast of Mexico. I was looking at things, political economic issues that dated back to like 1500 BC. But it was during the course of a lot of that archaeological fieldwork where I got to know working class women and men on excavations in these rural communities that I began to hear more and more stories about people's border crossing experiences and all of the difficulties one has trying to make it to the United States and then also to make ends meet while you're there. And so I got more and more interested in those stories and less and less excited about the archaeology that was coming out of the ground. And so right after finishing my dissertation, I decided to, actually before I'd probably even written a word of my dissertation, I think I already knew that once I was done, I was going to shift over to thinking about immigration issues. And part of this was also based on the fact that I'd grown up in South Texas, partly, about six, seven miles from the U.S.-Mexico border. I had lots of family members who had migrated to the U.S., either from the Philippines or from Mexico. I had family members who were undocumented. And so immigration had always been a thing that was sort of in my life, but I had never actually considered it something that I could study as a career. But it was during all of this work in Mexico that I just got more and more interested in, in those issues. And so I wrote my dissertation in probably six or seven months and then knew I was never going to look back once I was done thinking about ancient stone tools and ancient political economy, and that I wanted to shift over to understanding, focusing on issues around undocumented migration, border crossings, the materiality of, of border crossings. I think I was thinking about those things for a long time. At every little step, I was starting to kind of inch towards that work. And even before I had decided to make the jump into studying immigration, I've been playing music for now going on almost 30 years and, you know, writing songs thinking about the importance of lyrics. And it was probably around 2004, 2005, when I was in graduate school. So I started writing more about immigration issues and border crossings and the stories of migrants and coyotes and that kind of stuff. And so it was almost like I was thinking about these issues in other avenues of my life and then working my way towards this big decision, which was to completely shift gears and to, to start to think about contemporary migration issues. You know, for me, often the ethnographic endeavor feels kind of like you're excavating stories in some way. I wondered if you could say something more about the relationship between those different academic subjects and how it was that shift from archaeology and the work of excavation to anthropology. I was trained as an undergraduate at UCLA, which is a very large four-field program. And early on, you know, I was taught that anthropology could be all these different things. It could be archaeology, it could be linguistics, it could be ethnography, it could be physical anthropology. And when we're at our best is when we're able to unite all of those subdisciplines. And for me, you know, I love being able to move across those spaces and think about humanity in different kinds of ways, but then be able to connect the dots. So early, early on, I was a firm believer in that. I didn't realize that I had largely been lied to by um, 
by a lot of people because it's incredibly difficult to move across subdisciplines, and many people don't do it. We become, you know, such focused experts on sort of one element of anthropology that it makes it really hard to then delve into other aspects of the discipline. But I always wanted to do it. I always appreciated it. And I think I was always fascinated both by ethnography and archaeology. And so when it came down to thinking about migration, I realized early on that, you know, migrants were leaving stuff in the desert. They were creating this archaeological record of this contemporary social process. But that was a way for me to bring in my interest in the materiality of undocumented migration with my very, very deep passion for ethnographic engagement. But like most things in my life, none of it was well planned. It just sort of happened organically. And I started thinking, oh, I wanted to do ethnography now, but now I'm seeing all this stuff that has this material kind of possibility. So maybe I could start thinking about archaeology in this context. And then it was like, well, I'm also, maybe forensic science can become important for some of these issues. But all of those kind of twists and turns in my career really just developed out of my curiosity and me just being really open and willing to try to explore something new in hopes that if I was able to take on other kind of tools, other methods from anthropology towards the common cause, that I would have a better holistic understanding of this process. But I definitely did not start out to say, okay, I'm going to do this kind of four-field project. It was mm. more that here I am doing this stuff, and as I have more questions, I start to look for more answers using different methods that I knew were available to, you know, to an anthropologist. So what might it look like thinking from this historical perspective in thousands of years into the future, somebody is peeling back those layers of material of rock and matter and looking at the traces of the migrant trail as it exists now and in recent history between Mexico and the US. What kind of things might the future archeologist find? Unfortunately, not much. One of the unfortunate aspects I think of migration is that all humans, it's a fundamental component of our existence. Our ability to migrate is what has allowed us to survive and thrive. But unfortunately, migration typically does not leave a big archaeological fingerprint, which is why many archaeologists have struggled to identify it in the archaeological record. When you're moving across a landscape quickly, you know, you're typically not carrying a lot of stuff with you and you're not staying in one place long enough for materials to really accumulate. You know, we've tried to study things like the Trail of Tears and, you know, there's a, a very minimal archaeological record that can be accessed. You know, the Underground Railroad, we're better able to trace migration by looking at, okay, this thing that's in one location is similar to this thing that exists very, very far away. And so we see these kind of linkages, but we don't, we don't necessarily see what the path looked like. So I think about archaeological exchange between, you know, northern South America, Peru and Ecuador with West Mexico. We know that goods were moving back and forth probably around 1000 AD, 1200 AD. And we see certain materials like copper bells showing up in West Mexico that are very much South American in origin. We see particular bird species showing up there that are South American in origin. And so we know that they're coming from these places, but we don't have a sense of what the route actually looked like, which is unfortunate. And I think that's kind of the same thing with contemporary migrations now. If you were to go to the Arizona desert in a thousand years, you would be hard pressed to find, I think, the things that migrants have left behind because it's so minimal and much of it is very ephemeral. So plastics, fabric, those things decompose really, really quickly. And so much of the archaeological work that we've done over the last 10 years has been kind of salvage archaeology. We're trying to rescue these things before the natural environment destroys them or before they get picked up by conservation groups and thrown away. But that's really an unfortunate thing. I mean, you're not going to see much of this into the future because it just doesn't stick around for very long. I wondered if you could just say something more about the Trail of Tears and the Underground Railroad, these two other historic migrant corridors. You know, something like the Trail of Tears, where you've got thousands of people who are being forcibly moved across a really dangerous landscape in really unhealthy, violent kind of conditions. 
we know it happened. People were writing about it. You know, people survived it and were able to tell those stories. But they were moving across this landscape so quickly that it's been just really difficult for archaeologists to find evidence of that stuff. Occasionally, you will find temporary campsites, that kind of stuff pops up, or the Underground Railroad, where you'll find hidden rooms in particular houses. But even those rooms that you find oftentimes don't have a lot of materials inside of them. So, you know, you can speculate that the secret room was probably used to move escaping slaves, escaping enslaved people. But there's not a lot of physical evidence in those spaces that say this is exactly what we were doing there. And so that really is the kind of unfortunate aspect of these social processes are so crucial to human history. They were so devastating to certain populations. And yet we have very little material record of those experiences. And so I think anytime that we can document it for me is very, very important. And the ability to collect the water bottles and the backpacks and the shoes that migrants have left behind in the Arizona desert, I know that in the long run, we're not going to have much of that to look at. And so it's really important for us to preserve as much as we humanly can. Of course, people weren't doing that with the Underground Railroad and the, the Trail of Tears because it was so dangerous. It was so politically unpopular. People did not want to talk about the brutality that the government was carrying out against Native people. People who were smuggling enslaved people did not want to have that known. And so the circumstances in those moments were working against the, the kind of archaeological record. And so I sort of see the work now. I'm in a position now, or I have been in a position to, to use my privilege to try to document and conserve things that many people want to dismiss as garbage, as unimportant. But, you know, as an archaeologists, I know that what we consider to be garbage now will, of course, be of great historic importance into the future. And so I think we're in a moment where you're seeing it now, too. I mean, I love that they're collecting all of these materials from these Black Lives Matter rallies because they recognize that so much of that stuff is ephemeral and, you know, trying to have some foresight to document and collect those stories now as opposed to waiting 50 years and then trying to go back and salvage what's left. There are sadly a lot of rather unpleasant things said about migrants, and I'm wondering what you think are some of the more damaging misconceptions people have. Maybe the biggest misconception or the biggest misunderstanding is that when people talk about immigrants in their communities or engage with immigrants in their communities, they typically don't have any understanding about what those people have really gone through to be in that position that they are now. And so the person who is detailing your car, cutting your lawn, processing your pork, people who are in these positions, these jobs where they're doing highly skilled, low paid, dangerous work. When people think about those folks and they don't think about, I mean, number one, how much those folks struggle on a daily basis being undocumented in this country, but also they have oftentimes no idea about what they have gone through just to be in that factory or to be out in that field picking fruits and vegetables. They may have spent thousands of dollars to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. They may have been assaulted, robbed, almost died from dehydration, said goodbye to family in all kinds of traumatic ways. I think that people just don't, they don't see that. And for me, that's an important part of the story because I think if you understand how much someone has truly suffered to be just here, then maybe you'll be less dismissive about the importance of both of their role in our economy, but more importantly, their humanity. You know, these folks did not just fall out of the sky and, and end up in Des Moines, Iowa. They have suffered greatly to be here. If we understood that more, I think we would have a lot more respect for those folks. Jason, you're the executive director of the Undocumented Migration Project. There's a paradox, isn't there, in this idea of documenting the undocumented? What are some of the challenges that you face in that work? The Undocumented Migration Project is this attempt to record and to illuminate, to document and to highlight the experiences of people who are oftentimes in the shadows and trying to do it in a way that is ethical, that is safe, 
but that's also empowering for the people who are involved. And so for me, it's a commitment to different kinds of ways of recording information, whether that's archaeological information or ethnographic information, and then giving the people who are involved in those processes the power to be heard, to be able to tell their stories to a general public in a way that feels both safe and equitable. So I think about it as I'm trying to collaborate with people who are oftentimes being persecuted, but who at the same time want to be seen in different kinds of ways or be heard. And so it's um, working with undocumented populations is always a really challenging process because there are so many things that you have to sort of weigh. But at the same time, these are people who oftentimes never get a say in anything. And without the voices of migrants, this project would be worthless. I mean, as someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about the material culture of undocumented migration, I've seen lots of people collect the water bottles and personal possessions that migrants have in the desert. I've seen them put them on display in, in museums. I've put them on display in museums myself. But I think one of the major differences between a lot of those endeavors, and I've seen archaeologists do this too, people go and collect this stuff and then make inferences about people's experiences just based on the material record. And I think one of the major differences between that work and the work of the Undocumented Migration Project is that we always have prioritized the voices of migrants. I would tell people like, if you put stuff in a museum, water bottles and backpacks, and if I don't hear the voices of people themselves in those spaces, then what you're doing, I think, has little value because it's very, very easy to just go to the desert, collect a bunch of water bottles and put them on display and then say whatever you want about those experiences. And people will say, well, you know, it's difficult to work in Mexico. It's dangerous. I'm uncomfortable working with living populations. And for me, that's just laziness. If you can't work with those living populations, then I think you have no business picking up their material culture and trying to say something about it. But, you know, time and again, I've seen people do that. It's one of these things where with any other group, like if I were to go out and say, I'm going to start collecting the material culture of Native Americans and make an exhibition without consulting anybody, you know, there would, of course, be a huge backlash. Unfortunately, people think they can get away with it with undocumented people because they have very little political power in this country. And so for me, the Undocumented Migration Project really has always started with people and then trying to find other ways to tell stories about their experiences through the various tools that I can develop through anthropology or through other disciplines. One of the things I've really enjoyed in the last few years of my work is seeing how museums have really lent into communities' desire to tell and find an audience for stories about migration, stories both in the present and the past. I've recently worked in Amritsar talking about displacement caused by partition between India and Pakistan. And in Medellin, we've been looking at people displaced in Colombia because of conflict and environmental issues, but also how communities are responding to stories from refugees now being displaced by the conflict and economic instability in Venezuela. Oral history and the collection of testimonies has been so key to the success of these projects, along with, as you've said, more traditional material exhibitions. But what's always fascinated me is this idea of what's not there, the what's not said, the silence, the missing, the missing migrant. You know, I'm always thinking about the missing and the disappeared, especially in regards to the Sonora Desert of Arizona. Very early on in our project, I became very concerned about improving our understanding of what happens to the bodies of migrants who die in the deserts. Anytime I would ask people, you know, what happens to bodies? How are we counting the dead? I was getting a lot of unsatisfactory answers. People couldn't give me a good sense about what was actually happening to these bodies. Were they mummifying? Were they being destroyed by animals? Did we have a good count? Did we not have a good count? And so we started doing these forensic experiments around 2012 
using pigs as proxies for human bodies to understand how quickly bodies would decompose and get disarticulated and get destroyed by the environment. And what we found is in some instances, you could have a fully fleshed body be completely skeletonized and disarticulated and the personal effects and clothes ripped and destroyed and transported far away in 36 hours. It was a very troubling revelation, and it was compounded by the fact that as we were doing these experiments, I was starting to work more with the families of the disappeared. The story that, that stuck with me the most revolves around a 15-year-old kid from Ecuador named Jose Maria Tacuri, who disappeared in the Arizona desert in 2013, and whose body we have still not recovered. I think about Jose, I think about his family often, and the devastation that his disappearance has had on them, the perpetual state of grieving that his family is in. And I also know if we already haven't found his body going on seven years, it's not in the medical examiner's office unidentified currently, waiting to be analyzed via DNA, the likelihood of us coming across his skeleton now are very, very low. And so I'm often thinking about those issues, these elements of the process that you can't really touch that you don't have a lot of evidence, you know, for lack of a better term, to make this argument that people are suffering and they're being brutalized. And then the desert itself, kind of by design, is erasing all of this evidence. The exhibition Hostile Terrain 94, which is a global exhibition on migrant death in Arizona, will now hopefully launch in 2021. A big part of that exhibition was mobilizing people around the globe to fill out thousands of toe tags both for the identified and the unidentified. So over 1,200 unidentified bodies alone in Arizona that speak to this sort of presence, but not presence of these individuals, these people who have died while crossing the desert. And all we have are these unnamed, fragmented skeletons. And we may never know who most of those folks are. And for me, if I can't name them, I can at least try to find ways to force the public to engage with the unidentified, with the missing kind of in this other way. I think of 94 as the year when the Channel Tunnel opened up between France and the UK and Europe, which completely changed the landscape of migration for us in Europe. What's the importance of the 1994 reference in your exhibition? The title of this exhibition comes from a federal document called the Border Patrol Strategic Plan that was officially launched in 1994. And in 1994, the development of this policy called Prevention Through Deterrence was officially launched. And the idea was that if you could fortify border zones around urban ports of entry, so places like San Diego, El Paso, if you could make it impossible to hop the fence in and around those urban centers, people would have to walk 5, 6, 10, 20 miles east or west to more depopulated parts of the border, and then they could hop the fence and then cross into the United States. And that would make it more difficult for them because now, instead of just jumping a fence and running into an urban zone, you would have to walk upwards of 100 miles in some places to get to a city where you could then try to blend in with the local population. Those documents really lay this policy out and they refer to these zones, these depopulated zones outside of these urban areas as hostile terrain. And so the Border Patrol says something like, if we force migrants over more hostile terrain, it'll be easier to catch them. They will face a higher risk of death. And the risk of death and our ability to catch people running across the desert should then in fact slow down this migration process, which of course it hasn't done. And so the title of the show is a recognition that in 1994, we knowingly created a policy that funneled people towards places like the Sonora Desert, where we knew that they were gonna die if we did that. And it was hoped that if a few people died or enough people died, that they would stop coming. But of course, that's not been the case. And we've just continued to kill people with this policy into this current moment. 
3,200 is, in my estimate, is a very, very low number for the deaths in Arizona alone. Those are just the bodies that have been found either by law enforcement, by other migrants, by hikers, hunters that have been taken to the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner. But we know that there's probably a lot more people out there yet to be found. Yeah, I myself have been involved in the missing migrant projects in the European context, trying to have some kind of calculation of the number of missing in the Mediterranean Sea. And I mean, the whole politics of how do you how do you even begin to come up with a figure is obviously an incredibly difficult area. The theme of this podcast is immigration and democracy. And so in many ways, Hostile Terrain 94 exhibition is democratic in the sense that you're bringing in members of the public to engage with this topic. Who are the people who you hope will be moved by this? Who do you hope these volunteers will be? And how do you hope that that act of writing out that toe tag or making that short video clip will inform their life? I hope that with Hostile Terrain 94, we can reach a different kind of audience, people who maybe wouldn't necessarily read a book or want to watch a documentary film, but you know are interested in some sort of social in-person engagement. And for me, I'm trying to democratize the exhibition space. And the origins of this whole exhibition were, we ran a show between about 2013 and 2017 called State of Exception. I think we did it in five different locations. It ended in New York City on a very high note. I thought that the show was getting very good reviews, but my issue with the show was that it was expensive to put on. You could only do it in certain galleries that had a big enough budget to support it. And it was getting people, a certain kind of audience who would go to an art exhibition space to look at this stuff. And so with Hostile 2094, I said, okay, let's make it cheaper. Let's also say that anybody can host it. You don't have to be a fancy gallery space. You can put it in a community center, in a church, wherever you have a wall and energy, we are willing to help you do it. If you can't afford it, we will try to subsidize it. And we ask people, we say, look, we want you to mobilize your community to come in and fill out 3,200 toe tags. We want to collaborate with you so that you can connect this to whatever is happening in your local community around immigration issues. And so we went out and just started looking for partners. We found them in all kinds of different places. And it's been really inspiring to see the people who have come together and said, I want to do this. You know, immigration affects my community. What we're doing in places like Europe, you know, our first European show was supposed to be in Lampedusa. For us, a very important recognition of the parallels that are happening in the Mediterranean and in Arizona. But we're really just trying to partner with folks. And we're telling them too, it's like, we're giving you the basic kits, the instructions on how to do it. And then you can do whatever you want to it after that. Do you want to add additional art? Do you want to bring in musicians and poets? Do you want to generate other kinds of programming around this topic that connects it to your community? However you see fit to do that, we're willing to support people. By the time we're done, we're estimating easily over 100,000 participants, just people filling out toe tags, not including the thousands of others who will go and look at these exhibitions in these different places. But for me, you know, that is a really important part of this thing because I feel like I want to disrupt the exhibition space, but I also want to create real collaborations with, with people who are invested in these issues. Working to engage the community in questions of immigration is fundamental to our mission at the Immigration Initiative at Harvard. So we've been proud to work with Caitlin Robertson to bring Hostile Terrain to campus, but also to the wider Cambridge and Boston community. Caitlin just completed her master's at the Harvard Grad School of Education. She's also a teacher, community organizer, and now works for Refugee Services Texas. Caitlin, tell us what you've been up to. I talked with faith communities, art organizations, and student orgs, and everyone has been so enthusiastic to participate and bring more awareness to the public about policies that do create tremendous harm. I myself didn't know anything about migrant deaths in the Sonora Desert until I got involved with this project. 
Churches told me they would help hold the collective pain of these issues, and everyone has been so supportive. We were getting such a positive response, and we've been preparing for the tag writing workshops when COVID struck. But fear not, we're going ahead, and there will be lots of meaningful ways to engage around these issues through virtual events. We have a new virtual exhibition we're just starting right now where we are looking for 3,200 volunteers around the globe to record 20-second videos, reading out the names, the age, and the recovery date of these 3,200 people as a way to kind of breathe life both into those who we can put names to, but also to those that we still yet don't know who they were in life. Reporting date, January 12th, 2014. Cause of death undetermined due to skeletal remains. Typing in the details of a person younger than myself. A death that could have been prevented with safe, efficient ways to seek asylum or immigrate. So I hope you will all participate in this important art collaborative to come together through the arts and advocate for the changes we need. Nombre, Fernando Diaz Gonzalez. Nombre, Edgardo Bracamonte Macias. Edad, 21. Edad, 17 años. Fecha del informe, Fecha del informe de 17 de, de mayo de 2007. Causa, Causa de, de la muerte, muerte exposición. It makes me really sad because actually my grandparents and my uncles came here illegally. So like knowing that at some point they could have been the ones that I could have been writing this about. I think it's really important because this is something that a lot of people do not like to talk about politically and honestly socially. Immigration is such a hot topic in today's climate. Child separation is huge right now, building a wall. But no one's talking about the thousands of people that are dying um, on the border due to US policy. I think that's such a crucial part of this whole process is reminding folks that there are so many tragedies that we'll never have a resolution for or even just a name that we can attach to them. And I don't ever want to lose sight of that because I think there's so many elements of migration that are brutal and painful and devastating to people's lives, and yet they are really difficult to document. And so I've been gravitating more and more towards these much harder stories. We need more work in these really difficult spaces because so much of undocumented migration is hidden and we can't just focus on the things that are the most accessible. I think we need to commit a lot of time and energy to these other aspects of it. So whether that's the disappeared, the unidentified, or you know, I'm writing a book right now on smugglers. And so trying to understand who smugglers are in this whole process, a subpopulation of this broader process that's completely ignored oftentimes by the media, by researchers for all kinds of reasons. I want to put myself in those spaces where I think I'm going to be challenged to try to come up with new ways of thinking about these things that are either hard to get at, or maybe we think they're not that important because we're focused on one aspect of this process. But I really am trying to explore new terrain and so Jason, we've listened, we've understood, we want to make a difference. So where do we start and how? You can support local organizations. You can support national organizations that are working on these issues. You know, I tell students that you don't have to go to the US-Mexico border to do immigration work. There are immigrant communities nearby. You probably live in one of them or near one that needs your help. And so you can easily volunteer time to support people locally. You can donate money to organizations that support this kind of work. But I think most importantly, it's just getting educated first and getting educated beyond, you know, following the latest news cycle. I think that you have to kind of find some books, find some sources that will give you a more in-depth understanding of this issue 
And then I think with those understandings, it'll then better guide you out into the world. And guiding you could be, you know, how you vote, how you have conversations with people in your community and in your family about these issues, or about, you know, where you want to dedicate your time and energy. I do think that getting educated is so crucial because if you don't, I mean, it can be very easy to just say, oh, well, I'm going to give 50 bucks to the Undocumented Immigration Project or the Colibri Center for Human Rights. And now I've kind of done my part. For me, I would much rather someone say, how do I be committed in the long term to this? Where can I volunteer? Where can I use my skill set to assist with these issues? You know, we, we sort of follow these news cycles and whether it's immigration or police brutality, I worry that you know, I went to a rally, I donated 50 bucks as organization, and now everything's going to get better. I think what we need is people to have a much more long-term commitment to these issues. And you really can't do that unless you are, I think, committed first to getting truly educated and educated beyond what you're going to read in a newspaper or catch on the weekly news cycle. There are so many issues when we look at the news competing for our attention. What is it about this particular topic that you think requires specific attention and care? The number one reason to care about this issue, I think, is that it's not going away anytime soon and it impacts us on a global scale. And so you don't have to be interested in immigration. I mean, immigration is affecting every country around the world and it's only going to get worse. Human-induced climate change is making places unlivable more and more each day. Those people are going to have to go someplace. Many of them are going to come to the United States. And so we're going to continue to deal with this issue. Putting up a border wall has never been an effective way to deal with this issue. Future generations are going to be left with this, and it's going to be much worse than it is now. That doesn't stop me from wanting to work on this issue and raise awareness about it and try to make it better, but I do think that we're going to hit a, a tipping point. And I mean, you look at like with police brutality, we thought in 1992 in the LA riots, like, okay, this is it. People have finally seen that, you know, Rodney King getting beat by the police, things are finally going to change. We've got evidence of this now and, and proof that didn't change anything. And we're hitting this tipping point now with police brutality in the United States. But how many videos of the police killing black people have we had to watch and still see no kind of structural change. And I think we're going to see the same thing with immigration. America today looks like a scene out of the book Children of Men. And yet we're not seeing this kind of global movement to fix these issues. And so I think we need to care about this because it is about to get a whole lot worse. And it's going to start to really affect people who have benefited from the privilege that they can just ignore this. I think it's going to start knocking on those doors and we're going to have to find ways to, to work through this. And speaking of the importance of reading, of educating yourself, as an educator myself, I've read and I've taught your book, The Land of Open Graves, Living and Dying on the Migrant Trail. Obviously, the book was extremely well received. It won multiple awards. It's incredibly well researched and also very accessible for the general public. Could you just tell us a little something about that book? Sure. Well, number one, thank you for reading it and teaching it. Um, when I was writing the book, I didn't think anyone was going to read the book, maybe other than my mom. And so <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing with the book at the time, other than I knew that I needed to be true to the people who I was writing about, and I needed to be true to myself as a writer. And so I didn't want to take these stories of people who had fundamentally changed my life in so many ways. I didn't want to take their stories and overthink them, over-theorize them, drain the life out of them so that they could be translated for an academic audience. I really wanted it to stay as close as possible to the way that I experienced them so that people could feel for the characters as much as I did. And so, you know, The Land of Open Graves is a book really you know, people talk about it as a border book or as a four-field anthropology book or as an immigration book. When I reflect back on it now, I think about it as a book 
about four people. It's about these two guys that I call Memo and Lucho and about their struggles to get across the U.S.-Mexico border and return to the only life that they've ever really known. It's a story of a 31-year-old mother of three from Ecuador named Maricela Zagui Puyas, who died while crossing the Arizona desert in search of a better life for her children. And it's a story of this 15-year-old kid named Jose who disappears trying to reunite with his family. And so when people ask, what is the book about? I say, I hope that you think about it as a book about those people who just happen to be migrants, who just happen to be caught up in this immigration system. But I want people to read the book and walk away from it. And the next time they hear the term undocumented migrant, or they see some statistic about a deceased person in the desert, they can attach a name and a story to those statistics. My goal is to first and foremost, write stories about people and then connect the bigger dots to these immigration issues. Because I want readers to go into this book and connect with those folks on a personal level, not on this level of like, oh, I can empathize with these migrants. I want them to really empathize with people and perhaps see some of themselves in those stories as a way to create more empathy around this issue. When we talk about immigration and we talk about migrants, I find that we need a common vocabulary to refer to these Things, but I find sometimes too that it's so dehumanizing. And I think all of us need to be better at reminding us that when we talk about migrants, we're talking about people. Sometimes I think given the way that the academy works or given the way that certain kind of venues where we're writing about these issues works, that we can lose sight of those people. And so I think it's our job to bring those stories and those people to the public. So Jason, it's clear that you're gravitating towards more and more difficult stories. And I'm putting you a little bit on the spot here, but knowing that music has been such a big part of your life, what are some tracks you suggest we might put on after listening to this podcast? Do you want music about migration or do you want something completely removed? Maybe a little bit of both. Give us an option, perhaps. All right, if you need some songs about migration, one that everyone plays is Clandestino by Manu Chao but I think that's kind of um, sort of low-hanging fruit. You know, another one maybe is also low-hanging fruit is The Ghost of Tom Joad by Bruce Springsteen. But maybe one that I, I like that people don't really know about, there's a song called I Fell Into Painting Houses in Phoenix, Arizona by a band called Richmond Fontaine. And that story is about a guy who, he's a white guy who lives in Phoenix who works on a house painting crew. And it's kind of the story about picking up an undocumented worker and then how his boss completely exploits this worker. It's a very sort of succinct and I think very, I don't want to say pessimistic, um, but it is pessimistic, but it's a very kind of honest take on like what that can look like, both from the perspective of a day laborer, as well as a working class white guy who is kind of bearing witness to the brutality of that labor market, as well as the things that are happening in Arizona in the desert. So that's a song that I like to, I oftentimes will teach around. But if you're just looking for songs to write with, I would say that the music of Jason Isbell, who is a singer-songwriter from Alabama, his work has greatly, his music has greatly inspired much of my writing. In the Land of Open Graves, the epigraph in that book is a, a song lyric from a Jason Isbell song called Cover Me Up. That's what opens up that book. And I listened to that album nonstop when I was writing that first book. And then now as I'm starting to dig into this second book, I have a different Jason Isbell album that's kind of become the soundtrack for that. But definitely his work is always with me, especially as someone who is trying to tell a story about working class people, trying to tell it in a kind of simplistic yet moving way. And, you know, I want to say a lot in a few words, and I don't think I'm quite there yet as a writer, but Jason Isbell definitely is someone who can create a big picture with just a few lines. And that's it for today. I'm going to go and put my speakers on and check out some of those tunes. I think I'll start with Manu Chow. 
It was 2008 when I first encountered him at Glastonbury Music Festival as part of my own journey learning about immigration. To a city of the north I went to work. I left my life, I'm a line in the sea. A ghost in the city, my life is forbidden, so says the authority. If you get a chance, do check out Jason's book, Land of Open Graves, and we look forward to having you back with us next week. If you like today's conversation, please share it with a friend, give us a rating or a review. You can send us your comments and questions on Twitter at the handle IIH underscore Harvard. This show was made possible by the Immigration Initiative at Harvard University. It was produced by Ziran Wang and Jennifer Alsop. Music by Ziran Wang. Special thanks to our guests, Professor Jason DeLeon and Caitlin Robertson. And thank you for tuning in.